Heavenly Father, we do pray now that as we come to your word, you would teach us the heights of the plans that you have destined for us in Christ, in the midst of good times and in the midst of dark times, that we would be honouring, serving and delighting our Lord Jesus to the end of our days. In his name's sake we pray. Amen. Please do turn your Bibles back to Genesis 37. Continuing our series, we've taken a, a pause from John's Gospel, finished in chapter 12 last week, and now we're coming back to Genesis uh, after finishing uh, that mini-series last year, and we're in Genesis 37, starting to look at the story of Joseph this morning. There's also a handout for the sermon up on the inside of your Bibles, so you might find that helpful to follow as we go along. Now, how did you uh, find the experience of first driving in Kuala Lumpur? Whether you've come here from a foreign land and you, you first arrive and you get in the car for the first time, you get out on those roads, or whether you're here as a local and you started uh, driving at, I don't know, 16, 17, 18, whenever it was. How did you find that experience of first getting in the car and hitting the roads out there? Well, one of my not-so-great experiences when I first arrived in KL back in 2005 was giving a lift in my car to a group who were with us, some members of the mission team, uh, led by Sam Aubrey. Some of us uh, know him from the UK. I had just arrived, these guys had just arrived, and they needed a, a lift back to the guest house on Jalanampung, where they were staying. Uh, now, of course, being quite new to KL, we were quite unfamiliar with the roads, uh, so we took this um, very small map just to be on the safe side and got a few directions uh, from Andrew as well. We left here at about 3 o'clock that afternoon, and we eventually arrived at the guest house at about 6 o'clock that evening. It was an interesting journey. Uh, interesting, yeah. Other words describe it, because... Our sense of direction on the roads was hopeless. Our, our understanding of how to even drive on the roads in KL, it seems that it's quite an art to not drive on the roads in KL and actually get somewhere. Um, well, we weren't very good at that as well. Our, our knowledge of the one-way road systems around areas like Bukit Bintang, where we ended up and that kind of thing, was also uh, a nightmare. Uh, we, we only took a, a few wrong turns, having nearly got to Jalanampung, only to swing all the way back round, and we ended up at Parliament House, just down the road from here. Well, we got to the guest house, eventually. We knew we would. We, we knew we would get to our destination, but the journey getting there was much longer and so much harder than we had expected, mainly due to our own ignorance and foolishness. Well, the story of Genesis so far, chapters 1 to 37, has also been a bit like uh, that journey, uh, full of problems due to man's foolishness. The destination of the story of Genesis and what it points beyond is guaranteed. But the journey in getting there is far from perfect. Since Genesis 3, God has been making some incredible promises promises of restoration for mankind living under the curse of sin and death ever since Adam and Eve in the garden as it's described in Genesis 3 rebelled against God as their God and decided no we want to be the gods of our own lives we want to decide what is good 
and what is evil. We want to take God's place. And so sin and death came into the world as God said it would. But despite that, God still promised that he would restore. He would restore. An offspring of Eve would come who would crush the serpent who had led Adam and Eve into sin. Who would crush the power of sin and death once for all. And then later in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and promises him that he would be the father of a great nation. That they would receive a land from God and that they would be greatly blessed as they lived in that land as God's people. And that through one of Abraham's offspring, God would work out his promises to bless the world as he said he would. So that we again, could be God's people, in God's place, under the blessing of God's rule, what was ruined in Eden. But it certainly hasn't been plain sailing so far. Uh, Man's sin has threatened the fulfilment of God's promises in every generation that they've come to so far in the story of Genesis. Both Abraham and his son Isaac decide to lie about their marriages for fear that God won't keep his promises to them. So both their wives nearly end up getting pregnant by foreign kings, threatening the line of promise that God had decided. Isaac resists God's command to pass the blessing to his younger son, Jacob, because he favoured his older son, Esau, for his cooking skills which leads to Jacob deceiving Esau out of his birthright, and then having to flee from the land that God had promised to him, and live under that tricky uncle of his labour, because Esau, his brother, having been deceived, wanted him dead. Time and time again, so far, we've seen God working graciously and sovereignly to keep the promises that he has made in his grace, to his chosen people, despite that very people's best efforts to derail those promises in their sin. And today, as we come to the story of Joseph, we sadly see that passage continue. We start on a positive note in verse 1, in contrast to Jacob's brother Esau, who settled outside the land of promise, Jacob is very much in the land. And Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And that is about as positive as this chapter gets. Let me read from verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. So now we come to the next generation. The next group who are to receive God's promises of restoration. And what a generation they are these twelve brothers. Uh, Along with Jacob and his remaining wives, they form a broken family full of partiality, jealousy, bitterness, and hatred. Uh, We're told three times in the opening verses, in the first eleven verses of our chapter, that Joseph's brothers hate him with growing intensity. And verses 1 to 11 tell us why. Joseph's only 17 at this point. He was a shepherd boy, along with his brothers. And he has an annoying habit. And that brings us on to this first reason why they hate him so much. Joseph's tales. You see, Joseph's brothers, as we've already seen in Genesis, are not a great bunch. And it seems they've been up to no good again. 
Uh, we're not told what they do this time, but we see instead Joseph's response. We're told he brings a bad report of them to their father in verse 2. He brings a bad report. And now, reporting a wicked activity for the sake of justice, it's a good and righteous act. And it's something that doesn't happen enough in this society. But the word for bad report that's normally used here is also used normally in the rest of Scripture in a very negative way. It's another way of describing slander, an unfair or unjust accusation. Reporting what is true is admirable and good. But then there's reporting something, some series of events in a way that puts a particular group of people in the worst possible light for our own ends. A slanderous remark designed to build oneself up by bringing others down. And that's the impression that we get here. Joseph bringing this bad report to his brothers, uh, to his father about his brothers. Joseph is, I don't know if you have this word here, in, in the UK we have this word telltale, something that younger brothers and sisters are classically guilty of. I won't speak about my own younger sister, but telltale, someone who will look for all the mistakes their older brothers and sisters are making and then just run along to their parents. Uh, Joseph's not so concerned with justice. His concern is to look better than his brothers in his father's eyes. Not that Jacob is ignoring him. No, quite the opposite. So the second reason for why Joseph's brothers hate him so much. Jacob's favoritism. Jacob has 12 sons, but Joseph is special. He's the favourite. Favoritism has had a very long history in Jacob's family. His father Isaac's preference for his brother Esau, and then his mother's preference for him, and then his own preference for Rachel over and against his first wife Leah. And in every case, this favoritism has led to envy and division. And now we see Jacob doing it again. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. Seems Joseph being born to Jacob in his old age was a nice reminder for Jacob that he was still full of life, even at this point. Well, there's, there's Benjamin, of course. We believe he's alive at this point. But you've got to remember, when Benjamin was born, Jacob's favourite wife, Rachel, died in childbirth. So his, his birth and his existence is tinged by that, by that issue. So, Joseph is seen as favourite son, the son of his old age. And so, in his sheer insensitivity, Jacob puts that fact on display for all of his sons, all of his other sons to see. He makes Jacob, uh, Joseph this robe of many colours, an exquisite garment that would set Joseph apart from his brothers, looking superior. In today's terms, it's like uh, Jacob giving his son an Armani suit, and the rest of the brothers just jeans and t-shirts to go out and do the work. It really divides them. And so, as you'd expect, Joseph's brothers hate him. They can't even say one nice thing to him, because Jacob's love for Joseph is so evident. This terrible favoritism that makes them feel so unloved and inferior. 
I wonder, are we guilty of promoting this kind of destructive favoritism in our own families? For those of us here who are parents, do we treat one of our children as though they were more special than the other? Because, oh, he was born at the convenient time according to the plan we had set for our family. Or, or she achieved the goals that we expected of her in school or in uni or in career or in marriage. And they didn't. He's just more like us. He's easier to get along with. He's into the kind of things that I'm into. She's just more dependable. She's just that much easier to know and to love as a daughter compared to the other ones. Parents, please don't be that children. Love your children equally. Love your children unconditionally. Not on the basis of what they're like or what they do what they achieve and what they have failed to achieve. Maybe we're here and we're not those parents who are guilty of showing favoritism, but we've been on the receiving end. We know what this destructive favoritism feels like first hand. Uh, we know deep down that well, I wasn't that family favorite. My brother, my sister, that they were the one. Well, friends, if that is you, Please be comforted that as you trust in Christ, you have a Father in Heaven who loves all of His children equally. That there is no impartiality with Him. He is the only perfect parent. And we now live as His people, as His adopted sons, in obedience and delighting in Him. So we will be gracious with our parents, especially in the ways in which they may have failed us in the past. Loving, honouring, respecting them. And sadly, Joseph's brothers choose hatred over gracious love, and they become entirely consumed by it. Their hatred for Joseph just grows. And then we have Joseph's dreams. One of the ways in which God has made his intentions for his promises and his people clear throughout Genesis, is particularly through dreams. Jacob himself, when he was fleeing from his brother Esau, fleeing out of the land of Canaan, had received God's promises in his dream of that stairway to heaven, back in Genesis 28. Jacob got uh, that one dream, but Joseph gets two dreams at once, and both of them depict him in positions of great authority. Uh, the first, show him as a sheep of grain that rules over his brother's sheep of grain. Like that picture up there. And then the second involves the sun and the moon and stars, the celestial bodies bowing down to him, a much grander scale of authority. And Joseph, possibly in his arrogance, decides to go and tell father and his brothers exactly what he has dreamt. They know exactly what it means. They are the submissive sheaves. They represent the celestial bodies, the suns and the moons and the stars, all bowing down to Joseph, the youngest son. They don't like it. They don't like it one little bit. Verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. We have the dreams, and then we come to verse 8. Having heard the first dream, they say, 
Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Here was their little brother, this telltale favoured little brat, now speaking of how he would one day rule over them. Even Jacob, despite his doting love for Joseph, his favourite son, he can't take it. Verse 10. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Jacob scolds Joseph, but he does take the dreams seriously. He keeps them in mind. But sadly, for the brothers, Joseph's words, his explanations only serve to grow their hatred of him. But notice it's not just the words that make Joseph's brothers so angry. Verse 8 again, they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Even more for his dreams and his words. They hate Joseph all the more for the dreams that he's actually received in the first place. Ultimately, they're angry with God. They resent what God is going to do for and through Joseph in his will. And let's bring that home for us here at Smack as a church. Are we a bit like that sometimes? Are we guilty of this attitude of jealousy that the brothers have against Joseph because of the ways that God is choosing to use him at this point. We get jealous and resentful of one another. God is working in the lives of that particular person in a way that I really want. In our social life, are we struggling with singleness, resenting those who are married or if we're married but we don't have kids? And we have such a lovely group of kids and we envy them, we're jealous. Are we unemployed and envious of those who are in good work? Here at Smack, as a church, we've all received gifts from our Heavenly Father to serve one another in building one another up in Christ. We've all got our part to play and that part is significant and essential. But maybe, just maybe right now, we're not satisfied with the way in which God is using us here. Uh, we'd rather have the gifts of our fellow brother or our fellow sister we'd rather have their ministry and their abilities we wish we could pray like them or teach like them or evangelise them or, or lead like them that's where I want to be why can't I be there? are we jealous when we see that God is working in the lives of others in a way that we want them to work in us and so we resent them we resent them. Friends, don't be like Joseph's brothers who are consumed by bitterness and jealousy, forgetting that God has a very important purpose for each one of us when he has adopted his sons in Christ. We need to be humble. We need to trust him. We need to entrust ourselves to his will, remembering that he does know best as our sovereign all-knowing Heavenly Father. He's working out all things. And he's using us in those purposes. As we will see in a moment, God works through some of the toughest, 
most hopeless and painful circumstances of life for the ultimate good of his people. And he has set a very, very hard road ahead of Joseph in order to mould him into this great leader that we're seeing now in his dreams. And that hard road that Joseph must walk begins here, in verse 1. Read with me, please, verse 1. Now his brothers went to pasture their, uh, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. It seems Jacob, as the father, is totally oblivious of this violent situation which has been brewing between Joseph and his brothers all this time. And seeing as there's no CCTV or GPS satellites or Skype available, that's what mum will use to keep an eye on me, but seeing as none of that is available, the only way that Jacob, Jacob can keep an eye on his workforce, on his sons, is to send this physical messenger in the person of Joseph. So he sends him. He sends Joseph to bring word of how his brothers are doing. Are they doing their jobs? Or are they getting up to no good again? Now the brothers, they weren't exactly five minutes down the road. We've got a map coming up here. You can see it. And that red line that's slowly working its way up uh, the bottom of the line uh, shows uh, where uh, Jacob was living in the valley of Hebron. And then where that line has reached, that's Shechem. Uh, just up there. It's about 80 kilometers in distance altogether, so it's no short distance even for the fastest camel. It's well outside Jacob's territory. It's well outside Jacob's sphere of protection. And when Joseph does eventually reach Shechem, his brothers are nowhere to be found. Read in verse 15. Uh, and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, well, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, well, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. Dothan. Can we click again? You see, just a little bit further up. A little bit further on, about 20 kilometers further from Shechem. 20 kilometers further from where Joseph originated from, from Hebron. Another 20 kilometers again from his father's protection. But it's not just Jacob's ignorance that has set Joseph on what will turn out to be a long-term one-way trip. Another hand is working here. Strange verses in the middle of this episode that we may well have forgotten. We're very familiar with the Sunday school story, but did you remember this part? This random man in Shechem, whose name we aren't even given, who happens to just find Joseph wandering in the fields, and there are plenty of fields around Shechem at that time, he's just one of the locals. He's going about his business, and he just happens to ask Joseph, what are you looking for? And wouldn't you know it, he just happens to know exactly where his brothers have gone. Because he just happens to overhear them earlier, talking about their travel plans. It's an amazing series of coincidences, isn't it? Of course not. You see, God may have faded to the background in this story, but his hand is still guiding Joseph every step of the way. 
closer and closer into his brother's treacherous hands. Read verse 17, second part. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Ophel, little knowing what actually awaits him there. His brothers, of course, are still furious about the dreams that he had had, the idea that one day their little brother might rule over them. It was just intolerable. They couldn't stand it. So they decide to take matters into their own hands. They want to ensure that these dreams that he's had, they're not going to come true as far as they're concerned. They're going to see to that. And there's only one way they could be certain that Joseph wouldn't become this great ruler one day. And that's to kill him. Let's kill him on the spot. Verses 19-20. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. And they f- and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben, the eldest, he has a change of heart. He's the oldest brother. He's the one who will... That he has the most to lose, as it were, if something were to happen to Joseph. Ultimately, Jacob will blame him for, for losing his favourite son. And he's not exactly in Jacob's good books at the moment, either. I wonder if you remember the last time we saw Reuben in the story of Genesis. Just flick back to chapter 35. Have a look at verse 22. This is the last thing we're told about Reuben before he pops up in our verses today. Verse 22, while Israel, remember, um, God has given Jacob a new name, Israel, because he is going to be the father of God's nation. So we read in verse 22, while Israel, that's Jacob, lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. He had been caught sleeping with his father's mistress. And now he sees this opportunity to get back onto the right side of his father. Verse 22, And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he could rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Well, the plan is agreed, and Joseph, who was just a speck on the horizon a moment ago, now arrives to receive his brother's welcome. Verse 23, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colours that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Joseph's situation is desperate at best. He's been stripped of his robe, his clothes, his, his only protection from the harsh climate. He's been thrown into an underground system that would have normally been used to collect rainwater so that shepherds going by could drink from it and they could allow their animals to drink as well, having drawn up the water. But there's no water, even in this one. So Joseph just left down there, could well die from thirst or from cold. And the brothers, well, they don't care. They're not the slightest bit worried. Instead, they, they go and they get a takeaway, whilst Joseph remains in his hole. But it seems Reuben isn't the only one who is opportunistic. No, Judah is the next one to see an opportunity to profit. They see this caravan of traders coming over the hill, some Ishmaelites with all of their merchandise passing by on their way to Egypt. And Judah just suddenly 
seeing this group. He has a brainwave, if you like. He thinks, Joseph gone, he got sold as a slave far away, three years' wages made in one day, and no first-degree murder to carry around on our consciences for the rest of our lives. Win, win, win. After all, he is our brother. You know, being a slave would generally mean we leave, we're leaving him to be as good as dead, but you know, that's not murder, is it? And the rest of the brothers, they buy it. And so, verse 28. Immediate night traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. We needn't be confused about the, the change of names here for the traders. We know from later in scripture, for those of us who are taking notes, it's in Judges chapter 8, that the Midianites were probably a sub-tribe of the Ishmaelites. So they could be described either way. It's still the same group of people that they first saw coming over the horizon. Ishmaelites, Midianites, same guys. And they've just received this healthy, young, new slave in Joseph. And so they continue on to slave trade central in Egypt. And it seems Reuben was absent during the whole transaction, whether he was going to look after the flocks while the brothers were seeing to Joseph, making sure he didn't escape, we're not sure. But he wasn't there at the time when Joseph was being handed over. So verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph, Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And I, where shall I go? It's an interesting response, isn't it? His brothers, his brother has just been sold as a slave into the hands of a foreign land. Foreign traders, who will then go and be passed on to another foreign land. And, and so Reuben's first response as a loving, concerned brother is, where shall I go? But where did they go? We've just got, we've got to go and get him back. We've done evil. We've just sold our own flesh and blood into slavery. But no, it's where shall I go? Reuben is full of worldly sorrow, worldly grief. He doesn't care about the horrific sin they've just committed against God by betraying their own flesh and blood, selling their own brother into slavery. No, that's not what's on his mind. That's not what's weighing his heart down. He's just depressed over the consequences. That he might now be thrown out of the household. His relationship with his father damaged beyond repair. Reuben might as well be a drink driver who goes out, he runs someone down in his stupidity and then regrets it only because now he has to go to jail. It's the only reason he's sorry. Self-centered grief. Still just more concerned with one's own well-being rather than that of the offended party. Friends, when we mourn over our sin, what is it that concerns us most in our hearts? What is it that's on our minds most? Is it that we have offended God? Is it that we have despised Jesus, our Saviour King, who lived and died for us? Or is it the fact that now we've got to face some penalty? A broken relationship, a loss of respect, a fine. This is what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, second letter to the Corinthians coming up. He says, 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, without grace. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Responding to our sin in a godly way means putting God first as the offended party. No matter who we sin against and how we sin, God is always the one who is primarily offended. And so we are to be chiefly concerned with that offence that we have caused him. We are to repent of it before him. And we are to trust in the Saviour that he has given for us. Uh, the consequences of our sin may be serious for us in our lives right now, but friends, they're not the most serious aspect of God is. And the attitudes of our hearts as his people are to reflect us. We are most concerned that we are sinning against God. We turn away from our sins and put our trust in Jesus. In Jesus. Because you see what Paul says here? Worldly grief is going over. It just produces death. But godly grief produces repentance. That leads to salvation without regrets. Well, Reuben is distraught, but the brothers, they still have to cover up their crime. Joseph is as good as dead in their eyes, so they continue as though he really were dead. This is on to our third heading, Jacob Broker. Come again to verse 31. See what the brothers do. Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colours and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Actually, the brothers don't even have to tell the lie they had prepared for their father earlier in verse 20. They simply ask their father to identify the robe. And then Jacob expresses what would have been their lie on his own lips before they can even say it. See how Jacob identifies the robe. Verse 33. He identified it and said, It's my son's robe. This animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And so the sins of Jacob, the father, in his past, return to haunt him. Just as he had deceived his own father Isaac, betrayed his own brother Esau, so now his own sons deceive him, having betrayed their brother Joseph. Verse 34. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The normal length of time for mourning a lost son was 30 days, but Jacob's pain was too great for that. His sons, their wives, and his daughter, they all seek to comfort him, but it's no good. It doesn't help. Oh, Jacob is convinced that he will mourn for the rest of his days, that he will go down to the grave to Sheol, a broken man. And his depression will be a constant reminder to the brothers and the rest of the household that Joseph would always be the favourite. He would always be the favourite of that person. 
And yet, as Jacob mourns the loss of his favourite son, Joseph is entering into another household. A new household in Egypt. That of Potiphar, we're told, captain of the guard, who himself has close ties with the greatest ruler of that time, Pharaoh himself. Ruler of the superpower that was Egypt. And so, in what has been a rather dark cloud of events, of hatred, of jealousy, of betrayal and brokenness, we finish with this faint silver lining. God has not abandoned his promises for his people, despite the horrific sin that we see in these verses. He is still working to get Joseph closer and closer to the position of authority which Joseph saw in those dreams from him. So that on a later day, Joseph would say to his brothers, in Genesis 45, verse 5, coming up on the screen, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. I doubt Jacob felt that God was keeping his promises as he grieved the loss of his favourite son, Joseph. I doubt Joseph felt that God was keeping his promises as he was being sold to Potiphar as a slave in a foreign land. But he was. And he is. God is still keeping his promises to us in the everyday circumstances of our lives. Whether they are nasty, or nice. He is working in all things for our good. And friends, we have even more reason to trust God in the midst of wicked and uncertain times because we, as Christians, can look to the one that Joseph points us forward to. The one in which we see every promise of God kept in the midst of the worst circumstances. We're reminded in our New Testament reading in Mark's Gospel of how Jesus himself was rejected by his family. After commissioning his twelve disciples, his mothers and his brothers react by trying to seize him. Interesting use of words. By seizing him. They refuse to accept Jesus for who he is. And that's just the start of the opposition that he faces in his ministry. It's interesting, the words that Joseph's brothers use when they are hatching their plot against him in verse 20. You see what they say? Come back to Genesis 37, verse 20. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Come now, let us kill him. And yet those are the same words that Jesus uses, it's a direct translation from the Hebrew to the Greek in the New Testament in Mark's Gospel when Jesus is speaking a parable against the religious leaders that will kill him, that will send him to his death. And that's the parable of the tenants in uh, Mark chapter 12 verse 7. Jesus' words that he uses of them, but those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. Just as Joseph's life is handed over by his brothers to foreigners and left for dead, so Jesus was handed over by his own people to the Gentiles who would put him to death. The brothers, they thought that Joseph's enslavement, him him going away, sold as a slave, that, that would be the end of him and his dreams. 
And yet unknowingly they were putting him on the very path by which those dreams would be fulfilled. God was in perfect control, working out his promises every single step of the way. And in the same way, the Jews believed that killing Jesus would bring the end to his words and to his authority. How could Jesus really be the Son of God if he's nailed to a cruel cross, if he dies under the curse of being hung on a tree? And yet that was God's very plan. To bring about the salvation that he had promised down the ages to Adam, to Eve, to Abraham, to Jacob. That through Jesus' death, as the promised seed, through his death and his resurrection, we can now be God's people in God's place under the blessing of his rule, just as God has attained. Friends, God's steadfastness to his promises will never, ever change, even though we may doubt it at times. We wonder at times in life how God could possibly use some of the hopeless situations that confront us, some of the darkest hours of our days. Well, when we face them, remember Joseph. More importantly, remember Jesus, the one he foreshadows. Remember the great suffering that he endured for our sakes, according to his Father's will. And so trust that in every hardship, as painful as it is, and it is painful, our Heavenly Father does have a good purpose behind it. He will never abandon us. He will never forsake us. He didn't forsake us. He didn't forsake His Son, ultimately. He rose Him from the dead. And He will not forsake those whom He has saved in Him. He will ensure that we get to the destination that he has mercifully set for us eternal life through his Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this account of Joseph that reminds us of your incredible faithfulness and complete sovereignty in your plans for us in this world in Christ. And we do pray that in the light of what we've seen today, in the light of seeing your sovereign hand at work through the darkest hours of Joseph's life, Jesus' life, in those dark hours that we will face, we will remain faithful to you. We will remember your faithfulness that every single one of your promises have been kept for us in Christ. And so we would trust you. We would trust you in the darkness. And we would look forward to that day where you will take that darkness away finally and will summon it So Lord, please strengthen us to endure remain faithful to Christ no matter what happens delighting that we will be with him one day that you have indeed granted us eternal life through your soul and nothing can compare to us we ask these things in Jesus name Amen